Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. If you take Central to come here on, on Sunday mornings or throughout the week, you may have driven by Secor Metro Park and noticed that there's a big banner hanging on the fence outside the entrance. Probably most of you don't notice because it's not the kind of thing you care at all about. But Craig, have you noticed it? You bet, yeah. Melina, have you noticed it? Yeah. It says, welcome birders. And if you don't know what birders are, birders are the sort of people that wear a particular sort of garb when they go out with cargo pockets and hats with tassels and binoculars and they go to the parks and they, they, they search out rare birds. And we live in a part of the country, you may not know it, but we live in a, in a migration like tunnel. There's all sorts of rare birds that, that come through this part of the country on their migration flight. And um, a couple of weeks ago, I'm showing my cards here, we took the kids out to Ottawa Wildlife Refuge at the, what we thought might be the peak birding week, um, and we did see some cool stuff. But I've got six kids, we're getting in the van to go on our safari, and one of the things that you have to do when you're birding with six kids, 10 and under, is like, figure out where are the binoculars, right? Everyone wants a set of binoculars to look at the birds. So we, we're driving around all of Waterville trying to collect enough binoculars for our kids to go on this outing. And obviously, the, the reason that we use binoculars when we're out at the uh, Ottawa Wildlife Refuge is that we want to see things that are way out in front of us. We want to see these birds that are pretty much impossible to see in detail with the naked eye. And in a sense, in a sense, that's what the book of Judges is this summer. It's a set of binoculars for us. I, last week I gave us a spoiler alert, or a couple weeks ago I, I gave us the spoiler alert, and I said that the, the end of the book says that in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Judges is a pair of binoculars for those who live wanting to do what's right in their own eyes, and it allows to, them to see the horizon, where they're headed, or, or maybe, maybe more appropriately, the cliff that they're headed towards. The book of Judges is a book that narrates the history that happens when men and women live their lives doing whatever they want. So it helps us to see if we act this way now, where is it when it's far out on the horizon? This morning, we are going to do a little bit more reading than we have the last couple of weeks. Um, We're going to start in chapter 1, verse 16, and we're going to go through chapter 2, verse 5. So if you're able, please stand with me. Um, and turn in your Bibles to Judges chapter 1, verse 16 through 2, verse 5. This is the word of the Lord. The descendants of the Kenites, Moses' father-in-law, went up from the city of Palms with the sons of Judah to the wilderness of Judah, which is in the south of Arad. And they went and lived with the people. Then Judah went with Simon, his brother, and they struck the Canaanites living in Zaphath, and utterly destroyed it. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah took Gaza with its territory, and Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. 
Now the Lord was with Judah, and they took possession of the hill country, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley because they had iron chariots. Then they gave Hebron to Caleb, as Moses had promised, and he drove out from there the three sons of Anak. But the sons of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the sons of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Likewise, the house of Joseph went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. The house of Joseph spied out Bethel. Now the name of that city was formerly Luz. The spies saw a man coming out from the city, and they said to him, Please show us the entrance to the city, and we will treat you kindly. So he showed them the entrance to the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword. But they let the man and his family go free. The man went into the land of the Hittites and built a city and named it Luz, which it is, which is its name to this day. But Manasseh did not take possession of Bashan and its villages, and Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Ablim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. So the Canaanites persisted in living in that land. It came about when Israel became strong that they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who were living in Gezer. So the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahol. So the Canaanites lived among them and became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Arco or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Alib or of Arkzib or of Helba or of Aphek or of Rehob. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Benaath, Beth Anath, but lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. And the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath became forced labor for them. Then the Amorites forced the sons of Dan into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come up into the valley. Yet the Amorites persisted in living in Mount Harris, in Ajalon, and in Shalabim. But when the power of the house of Joseph grew strong, they became forced labor. The border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim from Selah and upward. Now the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land which I have sworn to your fathers, and I said... I will never break my covenant with you. And as for you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars. But you have not obeyed me. What is this you have done? Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they will become as thorns in your side, and their gods will be a snare to you. When the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. So they named that place Bochim, and there they sacrificed to the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated, and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are here with us. You say where two or three are gathered in your name. You are there amongst them. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would be working with power and might. For nothing can happen outside of your will. We pray that you would make our hearts soft and our minds alert 
to learn what your word would have for us today. And I pray that the words of my mouth would be true to your word, and that they would be helpful, encouraging, and convicting to each and every heart here. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. This morning is a case study in doing what's right in your own eyes. It's an excellent example of the long-term damage that compromise brings with it. And the title of the sermon this morning is Can't or Won't. Can't or Won't. We'll explore that idea a little bit further as we go along. As we said last week, the book of Judges begins with this question. And the question is, who should go up to fight against the Canaanites? It's a question that's directed at God. And the Lord replies, if you remember, that the tribe of Judah is the appointed one. They should go up first against them. And God's reply to the people makes a lot of sense, practically speaking, because Judah was the largest of the tribes. And so they're going to send their biggest gun to the gunfight first, very much like the Philistines will do with Goliath. Remember, the Philistines have this monster of a man, and they send him out on their behalf because he's the biggest. Essentially, this is all that God is instructing Israel to do. He's saying that Judah should go up first. Then the rest of chapter 1, of which we have read this morning, recounts how the other tribes do after Judah goes up. And as the reading made clear, they don't do a great job. They're not very thorough. I hope you picked that up as I was reading along. I also haven't mentioned this yet, but the author is doing something very particular here in the first chapter 1, chapter 2, up to verse like 16 or so of the book of Judges. If you have ever watched a historical documentary on Netflix, and chances are you probably have watched something like that, you'll know that before every series, they sort of do a little recap that you can skip if you want. And the recap is what's come before, all right? It's, it's bounced down into 15 or 20 seconds, and it sort of summarizes what's come before so you're ready to, to see what happens next. And that is essentially what the author of Judges is doing in a really masterful way because at the beginning of this book, he's really actually documenting things and giving us a recap, bringing us up to speed on the things that have happened in Joshua, even though it says Joshua died in verse 1. He does say Joshua died, but then he kind of like goes back in time, rewinds, and is painting a picture for us. So actually, last week's sermon was about this guy named Othniel and and Caleb, but if you wanted to find that story in another spot, you'd turn to Joshua chapter 16, I believe, and the same story is listed there. Actually, it's 15. I wrote it down. So the first couple of judges is setting the scene for the rest of the book. If we remember some of the storyline from last week, it begins with the tribe of Judah going up north and starting to conquer, starting their conquest, driving out the Canaanites and Perizzites. And they deal a crushing blow to one of the great kings of that time, a guy named Adonai Bezek. And the passage that we read this morning completes the summary of what the tribe of Judah is doing. Sort of, we started it last week, but we end cap it this week with these verses 17, 18, and 19 of chapter 1. Then Judah 
went with Simeon, his brother, and they struck the Canaanites living in Zaphath and utterly destroyed it. So the name of the city was called Hormah. And Judah took Gaza with its territory and Ashkelon with its territory and Ekron with its territory. So far, so good, right? But then in verse 19, we learn something very different. It comes out of nowhere. I was talking with somebody this week about the Kentucky Derby race, and they were telling me about this horse named Lucky Strike that came out of nowhere and won the Kentucky Derby out of, against all expectation. This is kind of like verse 19, because they're capturing, they're conquering, they're being faithful. They don't seem to really run into much hindrance. And then 19 just stops them in their tracks. But the Lord was with Ju- now the Lord was with Judah, and they took possession of the hill country, but... They could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley because they had iron chariots. So these guys have taken the harder terrain. They've already captured the hill country, but the valley they don't take because there's iron chariots down there. How did this happen? They were doing so well. We're given the reason for it. The inhabitants had iron chariots. That's the rationale. That's the explanation. Now, this might not seem much of an advantage to us in the modern era where we have drones and remote warfare, but for their day, iron chariots were a huge deal. This would be the equivalent of a guy with a BB gun and a a bicycle going up against a howitzer tank. It was a big difference between the two of them. Chariots struck fear into the hearts of the Israelites. But God had already told them that they didn't need to be afraid of chariots, that they didn't need to be afraid of horsemen. I'm going to read to us from Deuteronomy chapter 20. So again, we're rewinding a little bit here, but God has been very clear about what to expect when they enter this land. Very clear. In chapter 20 of Deuteronomy, he says in verse 1, when you go to battle against your enemies and you see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, Do not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, is with you. He doesn't say that because he's not going to allow them to come into contact with chariots. He's saying that early and often because they will, and he wants them to remember that he is with them. God is promising that he will be with them. There's an implied victory here, but he's also reminding them of what he has already done. He says this in Deuteronomy chapter 20. He says he is the God that brought them up out of the land of Egypt. And why would he say that in Deuteronomy 20? Why is it pertinent to remember what he has done as he's urging them of what they're going to go through in this promised land? Well, it's because horses and chariots aren't new technology to God, and they aren't a new hindrance to the people of Israel. In Exodus, when the Israelites had left Egypt under Moses' leadership, Pharaoh all of a sudden sort of comes out of his stupor and out of his grief from losing his firstborn son, the last of the plagues, and says, what are we doing? Why are we letting our forced labor walk away from us? He changes his mind. He had told them they could go. He reneges, and this is what he says. This is what it says in Exodus. He made his chariot ready, and he took his people with him. He took with him 600 select chariots, 
and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over them. So that's, if you're good with numbers, which I'm not, that's chariot for Pharaoh, 600 of the select ones, that must be like the heavily armored ones or maybe like the iron, and then all the other normal ones they had. The whole fleet is out. And they pursue Israel as Israel is walking toward the Red Sea. And as Israel's approaching that sea, that sort of like, that, that impediment to where they're trying to, to, to go, this is what happens. The people see the Israelites in pursuit and, and Moses stands up and says, do not fear. Remember last week, with the riot, he fell down before them. He should have, he was getting it right here, right? The people are in a frenzy, they're scared. He speaks and he says, do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of our Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians, whom you have seen today, you will never see again forever. That's a big promise to make when God hadn't said it to him. But he knows God, and he knows what God has said. And he's agreeing with God about the promises of God. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Then the Lord said to Moses, this is an incredibly funny verse, why are you crying out? Tell the sons of Israel to move. As for you, lift up your staff, stretch it out over the water and divide it, and the sons of Israel shall go through the midst of the sea on dry land. As for me, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they'll go in after you, and I will be honored, listen here, I will be honored through Pharaoh and his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I am honored through Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen. And of course, God delivers Israel that day. Israel's walking through the sea. God has piled the water into what the scripture says, two heaps on either side. Israel is walking through on dry ground as they're getting through onto the other side of the land, getting up out of the sea. The Egyptians are coming down into the midst of it. And what scripture said is God closes over the water, over Pharaoh and his armies, over his chariots and his horsemen, and they're drowned in the midst of the sea. And this is why we sing the same song that Israel did on that day. I will sing to the Lord, for he's highly exalted. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. It goes on. The Lord's my strength and song. He's become my salvation. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea, and his choicest officers he has drowned in the midst of the Red Sea. It was the Lord, it is the Lord, who fights our battles. He is not threatened by chariots, by horsemen. He's not threatened by the things that you most feel most threatened by. And he's promised to be with them, and he's promised to be with us, and he's promised to give you victory when you trust him and act. We still sing this song today. We sing it in church. I know a couple different versions. One, I sing with my kids at home. It's more of a kid's song. But we still sing the words of this song. And for a good reason, it serves as a memorial of the power of God to, to defeat our enemies. This is what it was for Israel at that time, too. We're sharing in the same, in the same worship, the same words. Some trust in chariots, some trust in horsemen, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And so coming back to our passage, Judges, that we read, 
we're left scratching our heads. What gives? Was God willing to deal with the Egyptian chariots and unwilling to deal or unable to deal with the Canaanite chariots? Has God only promised to get them out of Egypt but not promised to get them into the promised land? Of course not. God isn't a halfway God. If he calls you to something, he will get you through it. He does not put you in a position without any recourse once you're there. He will never leave you nor forsake you. When you are tempted, he provides a way of escape. He will never allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able to bear. That's 1 Corinthians 10. These things are true of God, but do we believe them? If we say we believe them, do our lives and actions live in accordance with what we say? So in the case of Judah failing to conquer the valley because of the iron chariots, we must understand here that it is not God's failure. It's not on his part a failure to empower the, Egypt, the, the Israelites to do what he had called them to do, and it is not a legitimate excuse on Israel's part, the chariots. God ain't afraid of the chariots. It's not his power that there's a problem with. And it's not a legitimate excuse for Israel, though that's what they cite. The passage, verse 19 of chapter 1, reads like a press release from the Israeli battlefront. And what they're saying is, we can't do it. We've tried our hardest. We've got the high land. We tried, but what we got ain't no match for the howitzers. We gave it our all, but sometimes our all doesn't get us there. And really, this type of thinking, this type of outlook, is no foreign state of affairs to our hearts. We get what they're saying because we're like them. Maybe the issue isn't iron chariots, but all throughout our lives, we come up against situations that are difficult, and our response often, too often, is that we can't. We can't do it. We have our reasons why, we have our excuses, We have our rationale, and it makes perfect sense from our perspective, just like it did to the Israelites. Another way of saying it looks good from our perspective is it looks good in our own eyes. And of course, the thing that really matters here and in our lives is God's perspective. What does God think of the situation? Well, we're told at the beginning of the next chapter, because if chapter uh, 1, verse 19, reads like an Israeli press release, then chapter 2, the beginning verses, 1 and 2, read as God's indictment of Israel. Now the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I brought you up out of the land of Egypt, which I swore to your fathers, and I said, I'll never break my covenant with you. As for you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. You shall tear down their altars and you shall tear down their altars. And here it is. But you have not obeyed me. What is this you have done? What is this you have done? We find ourselves at an impasse. And the impasse is can't versus won't. The Israelites have fought nobly in many regards. But here at this point, they say that they just cannot defeat the iron chariots. 
And on the other hand, God says that they have not obeyed. So it's not a matter of ability. It's a matter of will. That's what the Scripture is teaching us. So the application to our lives here is an obvious one. You can't or you won't tithe. You can't or you won't get out of bed on time and go to work. You can't or you won't change the relationship that you have with your spouse or with your child. You can't or you won't forgive. You can't or you won't pray faithfully. You can't or you won't lead your family in devotions. This is the truth and this is the message that this chapter is urging upon our minds. You can't or you won't rid yourself of your temper and your anger. And of course, just like the excuse of the iron chariots, all the excuses and justifications that we would put forward are just our version of Judah's I can't. So we say my situation is unique. It's different. My kids are different than your kids. They aren't the same. You don't understand. If my boss were this way, or if my job and my coworkers would appreciate me, if you had to live with them, I've tried before. These are all the things that we say to condition, sort of soften ourselves to the reality of what we're doing. So these, these statements that we make, I'm not saying you verbalize them, but we all say them at least in our minds as an excuse for why we aren't doing what we ought to be doing, why we think we can't do something that we won't do. When God has said something, you can build a tower as high as Babel with excuses and justifications, and yet it amounts in God's eyes to an I won't. Are you willing to view your life from God's perspective? Or do you trust your perspective more? We need to get out of our own way. We need to get out of our own heads. We need to trust and act, believe and move. Test God and find out that he is faithful to what he promises. Trust God who gives sight to the blind. Don't give, listen, do not give more validity or legitimacy to your excuses than you do to the promises of God. Do not give more legitimacy to your excuse than you do to what God has said. Let God be true and every man a liar. Looking back at our passage, we see that after Judah's initial failure, they're really setting the pace for all the other tribes because after verse 19, there's not a whole lot of good news. How did they get to the point of saying that they could not when the reality was that they would not. What led the Israelites to this place? Well, an obvious and in an obvious and fundamental sense, what led them to this place was a lack of faith in the promises of God. Remember, God had already told them that when they go in and see the chariots, don't be afraid of them, for the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt is with you. It isn't typical here to go from real strength and real faithfulness to cowardice in an instant. It sometimes happens, but it's not typical to go straight from trust 
to doubt. This is the lesson that we learn in, 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 in the story of David neglecting to fulfill his kingly duty to go to war and hence his failure and fall into adultery and murder. The story is given to us starting with the, that little sentence that he didn't go to war to help us see that bigger failures come about because of smaller failures. They, oft, they can come out of nowhere, but often they don't. It's often little things beforehand that set us up for the bigger thing. Large issues are typically precipitated by smaller ones. And in our passage, listen, we see abject failure preceded by petty compromise. Small, innocent-seeming compromises that lead Israel to a life of I can't, which is really I won't. Follow, follow with me here. Beware of the cancer of compromise. Compromise is always always seeking to get a stranglehold on faith. This is exactly what's happening with Satan in the wilderness. If you remember Satan and Jesus in the wilderness, one of the things that Satan says is, hey, if you worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms. Look out. What he's, what, what's he doing? He's tempting Jesus to compromise. What does Jesus have? All things and all people. If we read his high priestly prayer, God has given him all people and he's lost none of them. And yet Satan's saying, if you worship me, I'll give you the things you can see. He's tempting Jesus to compromise on what is rightly and divinely his already. And Jesus doesn't give an inch. Jesus doesn't give an inch. Beware of the cancer of compromise in your life and in your heart. It starts small, starts growing quietly, silently, and as it grows, like cancer, it kills our consciences, our resolve, our commitment, our fervency, our zeal. Remember that Judges begins with those Israelites asking God who should go up first. And God's answer was crystal clear. He said, Judah shall go up. I hope you remember this at this point. We've, we've talked about it a number of times. I have given the land into his hand, his, singular and then the very next verse, what we're told is, Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we might fight against the Canaanites. And I, in turn, will go with you and help you. So Simeon went with him. And of course, this makes, again, some sense because Judah was the largest. Simeon was the, one of the smaller ones. What's going on here? Compromise. It seems innocent enough. There doesn't seem to be any malice or ill content. They are brothers after all. It seems logical. Judah was the biggest, Simeon was the smallest, and their inheritance fell within the boundary of Judah's anyway. So why not take them along? From their perspective, it made sense. Plus, God doesn't seem to care. God doesn't show up in the next verse and say, you have not obeyed me, what is this you have done? It just keeps on going and they have victory. But it was compromise. Compromise always starts small and grows. I want to make a, just a few little points about compromise in the rest of our time this morning. Compromise starts small and grows. Compromise also often makes sense. 
There's another little sidecar story that we read in our verses today. It was about the tribe of uh, Joseph, the house of Joseph. They spied out a city named Bethel. And we were told that as they were approaching that city, just spying it out, they're, they're on their spy mission, and what they find is a man coming out of the city toward them. And they stop that man, and they say to him, show us where the entrance of the city is, and we will treat you kindly. Now, what we need to recognize here, if we're just thinking about what we're reading, is the entrance they're asking for is not the main entrance. What idiots would ask where the entrance is when the man walks straight out of the city? They're asking about a lesser-known entrance, something that would give them the, the strategic upper hand as they go to sack the city. And so the man shows them, they carry out their strategery, they win the city, and we're told that they let that man go. Now, I was talking with Aaliyah earlier this week, and she said, well, Nathan, what's the difference between this and what is done for Rahab with the spies earlier on? Seems very similar. Well, there's a huge difference, and the huge difference lies in the fact that this man went and did what? Norton, where's my man at? <laughs> he went and he started his own city, and he named it Luz, right? Rahab was brought into the people of Israel, and not only into the people of Israel, but into the very line of Jesus Christ. This man didn't assimilate. He didn't take on the God of Israel. He started his own city with its own pagan worship practices right in the midst of Israel. So that's the difference here. It seemed like a great strategy. It seemed to make sense. Let's let this guy go, and we've got the city. But God's instructions were very clear. They were to wipe out all of the inhabitants. They weren't to let any go. So what seemed like a good idea to them was disobedience and foolishness. The long-term ramifications of their short-sighted compromise is highlighted in verse 26 when it says that the man went to the land of the Hittites and he built his own city. Do not miss the fact that the author is trying to point out for us. Israel lost big, big time on this seemingly small strategic compromise. So compromises start small and they grow. Compromises seem to make a lot of sense at the time. And there's another thing. A third point about the cancer of compromise is that it often makes sense. And we think that because it's small and it makes sense, that we can control the outcomes, the effects of it. So this past week, I was working not at the office. And Jordan had told me that he brought into the office a new toy that he bought for a couple hundred bucks off Facebook. A mini bike, a little motorcycle bike. And he brought it in to show me when I got here. And I was on the phone with him, and he was explaining to me that, uh, or maybe I was here, I can't remember, but he was relaying to me something I didn't see. And, and what I didn't see was the mini bike. It looks like a six-year-old's bike with a motor and a plush velvet green seat. It was parked out front, out of these doors, and some of the staff 
were taking rides on them around the parking lot. And uh, what I heard was that Kevin got on that little thing, and it's got a, a throttle that, you know, it's not, it's not a, it's, it's like a scooter, you know, you just pull back on the throttle here, you don't have to shift gears or anything. And this little tiny bike that he thought he could control shot off the ledge of the curb like a rocket, and he came right off the back of the bike. I mean, just And it looks very small and unintimidating, but what Kevin didn't know is that it had a 230cc motor on it. Looks like my daughter Lucia's princess bike, you know, with this monster of a motor. And he just cranked that bad boy back. It was small. Okay, listen. It was small, and he thought that he could control the direction that it was going to go. He thought that he'd be able to steer it. He didn't understand the power that was under the hood of that little tiny kiddish-looking bike. Just because compromises seem small doesn't mean that we can steer where they go. You understand that? What you think is very controllable is not controllable. You cannot. Do you notice the progression and the effects of Israel's compromises as we read down through the verses? Now, you probably, hopefully you did, but I've read this passage a few more times this week. So I'll point out a few of them. Judah, in, verse, in the verse we've been talking about, did not conquer the valley because of the iron chariots. After that, no one, none of the tribes, actually was successful in driving out the inhabitants of the land. Now, chances are that they actually did take some of it and they were able to live in it, but they didn't drive out the enemy. Manasseh didn't take possession. That's a change here. The other ones took possession, but they failed to drive them out, the Canaanites out. Manasseh fails to take possession, and it says the Canaanites persisted in the land. Wow, a progression. There's a struggle even to try and maintain control over what little part Manasseh had. And by the time you get down to Dan, it says the Amorites forced the sons of Dan into the hill country. What a tragic verse. Not only are they not able to drive them all out, not only do they struggle to take possession, now the Danites are being forced out. So you see the arc here. You see the, or more maybe to the point, a downward spiral here. They did not allow the Danites to come into the valley. The message here is that the, the effects of compromise are not under your control. Do not think that your compromises with your kids will keep them or make them happy with you. Don't buy into that lie. Don't think that your compromises at work over moral things or character things will earn you position or status or favor or a raise. Don't buy it. Don't think that you can maintain friendship with the world and not be steered toward enmity with God. So, compromise, beware of it. It starts small, it makes sense. It, it always makes us think that we'll be able to control the outcome and the direction. It's not true. It's what our passage is teaching us this morning. I want to end by saying God's indictment on the people is this. I will not drive out the Canaanites from before you. 
That's what he says. What is this you have done? I will not drive out the Canaanites that are before you, but they will become as thorns in your side, and their gods will be a snare to you. Then the people lifted up their voices and they wept. Here's the warning. The things that you won't do eventually become the things you can't do. Won'ts lead to can'ts. God's judgment on Israel for refusing to take the land is to, in fact, not allow them to take the land. This is Romans 1. This shouldn't be a surprise to us. In Romans 1, the people worship other gods, they harden their heart to the Lord, and they forsake him, and what happens? God, in turn, hardens their hearts, makes their foolish hearts dark. He hides himself from them. You think that you can go further and further because you can always go back. You can always ask forgiveness. You can always start to do it the right way. But the reality is you can't always restart. You can't always make the changes that you should have made five years ago. Sometimes the things that we refuse to change, God makes unchangeable. And the habits that we refuse to break sometimes, God makes unbreakable. And this is a bondage. This is a warning. This is what it says in Romans 1. This is what God is saying in Judges chapter 2. So take the warning. The habits we allow, the things that we compromise on, eventually become iron chains that we are unable to break. That is why it is so important that we don't go through life saying to God that we can't do the things he wants us to do. It's not a matter of whether or not we can. It's a matter of whether or not we will. And we need to stop allowing ourselves to live with the excuses that we'd like to thrive on. So at this point, now I've said can'ts lead, uh, won'ts lead to can'ts, and some of you may be thinking that you wished you would have changed earlier. Is it too late for you, for your marriage, for your calling, for your relationship? What I can promise you, what I can promise you is that though it may be impossible for you to change, it isn't impossible for God. And so what I'd call you to is repentance. And one of the beautiful, miraculous things in the book of Judges where so many things are dark is that time and time again, when the people cry out to God, he delivers them. He sends them deliverance and salvation. He is able and he is willing to hear you. And so you don't have the power, but God does. Repent. He is glad to give you the freedom that comes through repentance. Don't say you can't when it's a won't. Agree with God from the outset. Do not give an inch to the compromise that wants to ruin our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and thank you for bringing some of these thoughts out of verses that perhaps we've read before and haven't thought about. Father, I pray that we would be a church that is firm uh, in its stand on your word and that we wouldn't just claim your word, but that we would live by it. Because what is it to say we live for, by something when, when our actions aren't in accord with it? So we pray that your Holy Spirit would empower our lives, convict our hearts, and may we give glory to your name through obedience. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.